Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the February 5th reading of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, it's been kind of a slow week in sports, so we have a lot of stuff that we can catch up on. Tomorrow, February 6th, will have been Babe Ruth's 129th birthday. So we're going to start off this edition of Sports News with a little bio of Babe Ruth and Remembrance. I pulled this from Wikipedia and a few other sources. Babe Ruth, born February 6th of 1895 in Baltimore, Maryland. Part of the aura surrounding Ruth's career from his modest origins, although the legend that he was an orphan is untrue, Ruth did have a difficult childhood. Both his parents, George Herman Ruth Sr. and Kate Schaumberger Ruth, came from working-class ethnic German families. Ruth Sr. owned and operated a saloon in a tough neighborhood on the Baltimore waterfront. Living in rooms above the saloon, the Ruths had eight children, but only George Jr., the firstborn, and a younger sister survived to adulthood. Since neither his busy father nor his sickly mother had been had much time for the youngster, George roamed the streets engaged in petty thievery, chewed tobacco, sometimes got drunk, repeatedly skipped school, and had several run-ins with the law. In 1902, his parents sent him to the St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, a Baltimore, Maryland asylum for incorrigibles and orphans run by the Xavier and Brothers Order of the Roman Catholic Church. For the next 10 years, Ruth was in and out of St. Mary's. When his mother died from tuberculosis in 1912, he became a permanent ward of the school. Baseball offered Ruth an opportunity to escape both poverty and obscurity. While a teenager at St. Mary's, he achieved local renown for his baseball playing prowess. And in 1914, Jack Dunn, owner of the local minor league Baltimore Orioles franchise, signed him to a contract for $600. Ruth obtained the nickname Babe when a sports writer referred to him as one of Dunn's babes. For this day, Ruth was a large man. He stood more than six feet tall and weighed more than 200 pounds. Before the end of the 1914 season, his performance as a pitcher was so impressive that Dunn sold Ruth to the American League Boston Red Sox. That same year, Ruth met, courted, and wed waitress Helen Wolford. Ruth soon became the best left-handed pitcher in baseball. Between 1915 and 1919, he won 87 games, yielded a stunning ERA of only 2.16, won three World Series games, one in 1916 and two in 1918, and during a streak for scoreless World Series innings, set a record by pitching 292. 29 and two-thirds consecutive shutout innings. At the same time, Ruth exhibited so much hitting clout that on the days he did not pitch, manager Ed Barrow played him at first base or in the outfield. In an age where home runs were rare, 
Ruth slammed out 29 in 1919, thereby topping the single-season record of 27 set in 1884 by Ned Williamson of the Chicago White Stockings, and later to be the Chicago White Sox. In 1920, Harry Frazee, the team owner and a producer of Broadway plays who was always short of money, sold Ruth to the New York Yankees for $125,000 plus a personal loan from Yankee owner Jacob Rupert. While initially reluctant to leave Boston, Ruth signed a two-year contract with the Yankees for $10,000 a year. As a full-time outfielder with the Yankees, Ruth quickly emerged as the greatest hitter to have ever played the game. Nicknamed by sports writers as the Sultan of Swat, in his first season with the Yankees in 1920, he shattered his own single-season record by hitting 54 home runs, 25 more than he had hit in 1919. The next season, Ruth did even better. He slammed out 59 homers and drove in 170 runs. In 1922, his salary jumped to $52,000, making him by far the highest-paid player in baseball. That summer, he and Helen appeared in public with a new daughter, Dorothy, who was apparently the result of one of his many sexual escapades. In 1922, Ruth's home run totals dropped to 35, but in 1923, with the opening of a magnificent new Yankee Stadium dubbed by a sports writer as the house that Ruth built, he hit 41 home runs, batted 393, and had a record-shattering slugging percentage, total bases divided by at-bats, of 764. He continued with a strong season in 1924 when he hit a league-leading 46 home runs. But in 1925, while suffering from an intestinal disorder, thought by many to be syphilis, his offensive production declined sharply. That season, while playing in only 98 games, he hit 25 home runs. He also struggled in his private life. Two years earlier, he had met and fallen in love with actress Claire Hodgson, and in 1925, he legally separated from Helen. Helen's death from a fire in 1929 freed him to marry Hodgson the same year. The couple then formally adopted Dorothy, and Ruth adopted Hodgson's daughter, Julia. Back on the field during the 1926 season, Ruth returned to his old form. Indeed, in the 1926 through 1932 seasons, Ruth, in his offensive output, towered over all other players in the game. For those seven seasons, he averaged 49 home runs per season, batting in 151 runs and had a batting average of 353 while taking the Yankees to four league pennants and three World Series championships. In 1927, Ruth's salary leapt to $70,000. That season, he hit 60 home runs, a record that remained unbroken until Roger Maris hit 61 homers in 1961. That same season, Ruth teamed with Lou Gehrig to form the greatest home-running hitting duo in baseball. Ruth and Gehrig were the heart of the 1927 Yankees team, nicknamed Murderer's Row, which is regarded by many baseball experts as the greatest team to ever play the game. 
1932 World Series revealed not only Ruth's flair for exploiting the moment, but producing his famous called-shot home run. In the third game of the series against Chicago, while being heckled by the Cubs bench, Ruth, according to a story whose accuracy remains in doubt to this day, responded by pointing his finger to the center field bleachers. On the very next pitch, Ruth hit the ball precisely into that spot. After 1932, Ruth's playing skills rapidly diminished. Increasingly corpulent and slowed by age, his offensive numbers dropped sharply in both 1933 and 1934. He wanted to manage the Yankees, but Rupert, the team's owner, is reported to have said that Ruth could not control his own behavior, let alone that of other players, and so he refused to offer him the post. Hoping eventually to become a manager, in 1935, Ruth joined the Boston Braves as a player and assistant manager, but the offer to manage a big league team never came. Ruth finished his career that season with 714 home runs, a record that remained unblemished until broken by Henry Aaron in 1974. In 1936, sports writers honored Ruth by selecting him as one of five charter members to the newly established Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Ruth was hopeless, hopeless, a Ruth was a hopeless spendthrift, but fortunately for him, in 1921, he met and employed Christy Walsh, a sports cartoonist turned agent. Walsh not only obtained huge contracts for Ruth's endorsement of products, but also managed his finances so that Ruth lived comfortably during his retirement. During his final years, Ruth frequently played golf and made numerous personal appearances on behalf of products and causes, but missed being actively involved in baseball. Still, he maintained his popularity with the American public. After his death from throat cancer, at least 75,000 people viewed his body in Yankee Stadium and some 75,000 attended his funeral service, both inside and outside of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Ruth was a major figure in revolutionizing America's national game. While this frequent claim that his feats single-handedly saved the game from a massive public disillusionment that might have otherwise accompanied the Black Sox scandal of 1919 is an exaggeration, his home run hitting did revitalize the sport. Prior to Ruth, teams had focused on what they called scientific or inside baseball, a complicated strategy of employing single sacrifices hit-and-run plays and stolen bases in order to score one run at a time. But Ruth seemed to make such tactics obsolete. With one mighty swat, he could clear the bases. While no other player in his day compared to Ruth in the ability to hit home runs, soon other players were also swinging harder and more freely. Indeed, Ruth helped to introduce an offensive revolution in baseball. In the 1920s, batting averages, home runs, and runs scored soared to new heights. Ruth was also to a large extent responsible for manning the great Yankee dynasty of the 1920s and early 30s. Between 1921 and 1932, the Yankees won seven pennants and four World Series. In the 1920s, a decade that produced a galaxy of sports celebrities such as Red Grange in gridiron football and Jack Dempsey in prize fighting, 
no figure from the world of sport exceeded the public appeal of Ruth. He has become a national curiosity, reported the New York Times as early as 1920, and the sightseeing pilgrims who daily flock into Manhattan are as anxious to rest eyes on him as they are to see the Woolworth Building. Each morning, men and boys across the United States unfolded their newspapers to see if Ruth had hit yet another home run. Notorious for his enormous appetite for all things of the flesh, Ruth seemed to represent a new era in American history, a time when men and women were freer than they had been in the past to enjoy themselves. He embodied a new model of success in an increasingly complex world of assembly lines and bureaucracies. Ruth, like other celebrities of the day, leapt to fame and fortune by his sheer natural talents and personal charisma rather than by hard work and self-control. The very words Ruth and Ruthian entered the American lexicon as benchmarks to describe outstanding performers and performances in all fields of human endeavor. As with no other sports figure in American history except perhaps Muhammad Ali, Ruth continued long after his playing career ended to occupy a towering place in America's imagination. So backing up a few paces, this is from another uh, source for Babe Ruth. During the autumn of 1946, it was discovered that Babe had a malignant tumor on his neck and his health deteriorated quickly. On June 13th of 1948, Ruth's jersey number three was retired by the Yankees during his last appearance at Yankee Stadium. Babe lost his battle with cancer on August 16th of 1948. His body lay in repose in Yankee Stadium with his funeral two days later at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Over 100,000 people lined up and paid their respects to the Babe. The Babe helped save baseball from the ugly Black Sox scandal and gave hope to millions during the Great Depression. His Im- he impacted the game in a way never seen before or since. He continues to be the benchmark by which all other players are measured, like, like we said, Ruthian. Despite retiring from the, same, from the game in 1935, Babe is still to this day widely considered the greatest player in Major League Baseball history. And speaking of the Baltimore Orioles, where Babe Ruth first started, here's an article that was released by the Associated Press on January 31st, and it appeared in publications worldwide. Hal Ripken Jr. and Grant Hill are part of the investor group that has agreed to buy the Baltimore Orioles, and so are former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and former Baltimore Mayor Kurt Schmoke. The group is headed by Baltimore natives David Rubenstein, a co-founder of the Carlisle Group. Additional investors were revealed in a news release Wednesday announcing the agreement between Rubenstein and the Angelos family. I'm excited to once again be a part of the Orioles organization, and I thank thank David for including me in the ownership group, Ripken said in a statement. The Orioles have been a part of my life since I was a child, and this is a special day. The Angelos family has run the team for the past three decades and is selling a controlling stake in the team to Rubenstein for $1.725 billion. I'm grateful to the Angelos family for the opportunity to join the team I have been a fan of my entire life. 
I look forward to working with all the Orioles owners, players, and staff to build upon the incredible success the team has achieved in recent seasons. Our collective goal will be to bring a World Series trophy back to the city of Baltimore. To the fans, I say, we do it for you, and we can't do it without you. John Angelos, the club's current chairman, will remain as a senior advisor. I'm personally committed to helping David and his partners take the franchise to the next level, Angelos said. We think this transaction is great for Major League Baseball and great for the city of Baltimore and for Maryland. We are thankful to the fans and supporters cheering on the O's as we have as we reach this important goal. And who will be with us celebrating with more success to come? Rubenstein's investment team includes Ripken and Hill, who, in addition to being Hall of Famers in baseball and basketball, have ties to the extended area. Ripken, of course, is an Orioles legend who was born in Have to Grace, Maryland. Hill is from Northern Virginia, not far from Washington. Other members of the investment group include Bloomberg, Smoke, Aries Management co-founder Michael Arjagetti, Aries Credit Group co-heads Michael Goldstein and Michael Smith, and Cognostate founder Michelle Kang, who also owns the Washington spirit of the NWSL. The sale is subject to a full vote of Major League Baseball ownership and must receive 75% approval. The Angelos family has been in control of the Orioles since 1993, when Peter Angelos purchased the team for $173 million. Angelos' son John is the team's current chairman, and the Orioles recently reached a deal on a new lease extension at Camden Yards. Governor Moore would like to thank the Angelos family for their contributions to the Orioles community and this storied franchise, says Carter Elliott, a spokesman for Maryland Governor Wes Moore. Keeping the Orioles in Baltimore for the long term was a key priority for this administration, and we are proud that this transaction won't change that. The Angelos family will keep a significant investment in the team. When I took on the role of chair and CEO of the Orioles, we had the objective of restoring the franchise to elite status in Major League Sports, keeping the team in Baltimore for years to come, and revitalizing our partnership group, John Angelos said. This relationship with David Rubenstein and his partners validates that we have not only met but exceeded our goals. The Orioles won 101 games last season, their most since 1979, and their future is bright thanks to young stars Adley Rushman and Gunnar Henderson, as well as a farm system that has remained loaded even as top prospects moved on to the big leagues. The team's low payroll has been a sore spot with fans, but this sale offers hopes that the Orioles might spend aggressively enough to make the most of the impressive foundation of talent that they have built. Here is a sad article in baseball, and but there is a phoenix rising out of the ashes. You may have heard about the statue of baseball great Jackie Robinson being stolen in Kansas. This article by Andrew Young came out January 27th in the Washington Post. A statue of baseball legend Jackie Robinson that stood at a park in Wichita, Kansas, was stolen on Thursday, police and city officials said. The bronze statue was cut at the ankles and hauled away in a truck 
According to the Wichita police, the incident has angered the local community. Other than the sheer historical significance of Robinson, the first black major leaguer who broke the sports color barrier, the statue was stolen from McAdams Park, home of League 42, a youth league named after Robinson's jersey number. The theft also came days before Black History Month. No matter the motivation of those who were involved, they were not only stealing from the community, they were also stealing from the legacy of work that has been put in by the members of League 42, says Brendan Johnson, a member of the Wichita City Council. But more importantly, they're stealing from the kids. It's incredibly disgusting to me that a person would do something like this, Johnson added. McAdams Park is known for recognizing influential African-Americans. Besides hosting the Robinson statue, the park is named after Emerson McAdams, a former Black City official. It renamed its community center after Carl G. Brewer, the city's first elected Black mayor who served from 2007 to 2015. The Wichita Metro Crime Commission is offering a $2,500 reward for a tip that leads to an arrest and an additional $5,000 for a tip that leads to the recovery of the statue. I'm frustrated by the actions of those individuals who had the audacity to take the statue of Jackie Robinson from a park where kids and families in our community gathered to learn the history of Jackie Robinson, an American icon, and play the game of baseball, says Joe Sullivan, the Wichita police chief. This should upset all of us. Bringing the thieves to justice will be a priority for the Wichita police, Sullivan said. Robinson played for the Negroes League's Kansas City Monarchs before making his Major League Baseball debut with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Robinson would continue to serve as a symbol of civil rights after his playing career was over, urging Major League Baseball to hire its first black manager in 1972, nine days before his death. The stolen statue's value is, is more than $75,000, according to city officials. But the price of the emotional damage that the theft has generated is immeasurable, they said. The value is much more than that. It's Jackie Robinson. And I'll just leave it at that, says Troy Houtman, the city's park and recreation director. And the statue was recovered. This article by Heather Hollingsworth for the Associated Press, it appeared on January 30th in publications worldwide. Fire crews found the burned remnants on, of, on Tuesday of a prized bronze statue of Jackie Robinson that was stolen last week from a public park in Kansas. The Wichita Fire Department received a call about 8.40 a.m. about a trash can on fire at Garby Park in the southern part of the city and discovered what appeared to be pieces of the statue, according to a police spokesperson, Andrew Ford. At a news conference, he described the statue as not salvageable. The statue, which was cut at the figure's ankles, went missing Thursday morning. If it turns out that it was racially motivated, then obviously that is a deeper societal issue, and it certainly would make this a much more concerning theft, says Bob Lutz, executive director of the Little League nonprofit that commissioned the sculpture. We'll wait and see what this turns out to be. 
Mink 42, which is named after Robinson's Dodgers number, paid about $50,000 for the model, which was installed in 2021 in McAdams Park, where roughly 600 children play in the Youth Baseball League. It also offers educational programs. The police spokesperson said that with assistance from arson investigators, they have conducted more than 100 interviews. Surveillance video shows two people hauling the sculpture away in the dark to a truck that was later found abandoned. Yes, it's really disheartening to see the remnants of the statue and the disgraceful way in which it has been disrespected, says Wichita Police Chief Joe Sullivan, describing the discovery of it as a direct indication of the pressure suspects felt from the ongoing investigation. He said police are conferring with the prosecutor's office on a regular basis. There will be arrests, but we're going to make sure that when we do, we will have a solid case, he said, adding that for anyone involved in the theft, it's only a matter of time. Robinson played for the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues before joining the Brooklyn Dodgers, paving the way for generations of black American ballplayers. He's considered not only a sports legend, but also a civil rights icon. Lutz, the nonprofit director, said there will be a new statue installed that will look exactly like the old one, which was made by his friend, the artist John Parsons, before his death. He said the mold is still viable and anticipated that a replacement could be erected within a matter of months. I'm trying to keep it together, he said, adding, the statue that reappears at McAdams Park will be the work of John Parsons. He stressed that we are ready for some joy. The theft was discovered shortly before Black History Month, but Lutz said in an interview after the news conference that he was hopeful the motive wasn't racial, but that the thieves just saw the bronze as monetarily valuable. Council member Brandon Johnson described the statue as a symbol of hope and said donations for the replacement are coming from local businesses and through an online fundraiser. This now lets us know that we need a new statue, he said, of the destroyed remains. We're no longer looking for the complete intact statue. We know we need to raise money to replace it, and we will do so. And this article by Katie Langford the Denver, of the Denver Post, and it appeared on February 2nd. A bronze statue of baseball legend Jackie Robinson that was stolen and destroyed in Kansas will be remade at a Colorado art foundry after a national outpouring of support. The statue of Robinson, the first black player in Major League Baseball in the 20th century, was cut off at the ankles and stolen from a youth baseball league complex inside McAdams Park in Wichita, Kansas on January 25th. The statue's burned remains were found in a different park on Tuesday morning and were not salvageable. No arrests have been made in the case. Wichita police have not disclosed a possible motive in the case, though Chief Joe Sullivan said at a January 26 news conference that he was troubled that the statue was stolen just days before the beginning of Black History Month. We're not making the connection, but we are certainly not discounting it. Week 42, named for Robinson's jersey number on the Brooklyn Dodgers, was founded in 2013 to give kids from urban areas a chance to play baseball without the high cost of recreational leagues. For $30 per player or family of siblings, League 42 provides a uniform and gear to children between 5 and 14 years old 
and has grown to 600 players across 44 teams. When Executive Director Bob Lutz walked outside of the league's office and noticed the statue missing on the afternoon of January 25th, he called over another employee to make sure what he was seeing was real. I felt anger, devastation, and sadness, Lutz said. My immediate reaction was that I don't know that I can continue to do this. The statue was a symbol for League 42 and also held personal significance for Lutz. It was created by his late friend, sculptor John Parsons, who passed away in 2022. We were devastated to lose this statue, but for me personally, knowing how I worked in conjunction with John to make this happen, it was a real blow, he said. In the days that followed the theft, League 42 received a national outpouring of support, including from Major League Baseball itself. Major League Baseball's commissioner's office and 30 clubs committed funding towards the cost of replacing the statue, Lutz said in a post on X. A crowdfunding campaign for League 42 has raised more than $180,000, which will fund the statue's replacement and more security. The money will also fund the league's education initiatives and facility improvements like new lights and artificial turf, Lutz said. This money pouring in from all over America will help us in many ways, and we are humbled by the response, he said. The statue was created at Art Castings of Colorado, a bronze foundry in Loveland, and will be recast there in the coming months. General Manager Tony Workman and said the foundry typically keeps molds for up to two years, but as luck would have it, Parsons Mold was still in storage. The foundry creates around 60 life-sized or bigger pieces per year in addition to hundreds of tabletop sculptures, Workman said. While most life-sized pieces take around six weeks to complete, a backlog at the foundry means the new Robinson statue will be ready in eight to six months. Well, we certainly look forward to that, and we will keep you posted. Here's a quick little article by William Weinbaum. He is an ESPN staff writer. And it came out on ESPN.com on January 27th. This is about Saturday's New York Baseball Writers' Dinner. Saturday's Baseball Writers' Dinner ended with William J. Slocum, Jack Lang Notorious Service Award going to Miguel Cabrera in absentia, Dusty Baker and Terry Francona, who said, I am the definition of a baseball lifer. I've been around the game since I could crawl. Dusty Baker noted having played with Francona's father as well as having survived cancer and a stroke. He concluded philosophically, you have to forgive the people who might have wronged you because we're all God's children. And in other baseball news, this article by Field Level Media, it appeared in publications worldwide on January 29th. Jimmy Williams, who won 910 games as a major league manager and was the 1999 American League Manager of the Year, has died at the age of 80. The Boston Red Sox said that he died in Florida after a brief illness. Jimmy Williams was a true staple and leader of the Red Sox, said the team on a posting on X. Jimmy Williams went 910 wins against 790 losses in 12 seasons managing the Toronto Blue Jays from 1986 to 89. 
the Boston Red Sox from 1997 to 2001, and the Houston Astros from 2002 to 2004. He took the Red Sox to the postseason in 1998 and 99, going five wins against nine losses. He was manager of the year for Boston in 1999 after finishing second in the voting a year earlier. Williams won two World Series rings as a coach in 1995 as third base coach of the Atlanta Braves and in 2008 as a bench coach for the Philadelphia Phillies. Williams played in just 14 games as a middle infielder in 1966 and 67 with the St. Louis Cardinals. He went 3 for 13 in his career with his first hit coming off of Hall of Famer Juan Marichal. He joined the Blue Jays as a base coach in 1980 after managing in the minor leagues for six years. Williams is survived by his wife Peggy, four children, and eight grandchildren. And Jimmy Williams is just an example of how you can be not such a great baseball player, but a great manager and coach in the game. Here's an interesting article by David Schoenfield. He's a senior writer for ESPN. Came out on January 24th on ESPN.com. Baseball Hall of Fame 2024, why Beltre, Helton, and Maurer got in. We have a new group of Baseball Hall of Famers, Andre Beltre, Joe Maurer, and Todd Helton, all exceeding the 75% threshold required from the Baseball Writers Association of America, otherwise known as BWAA, to gain entry to Cooperstown. While Beltre was the only slam dunk selection of the class, it's still a fun group, with Maurer and Helton both spending their entire career with one team and becoming franchise icons for the Minnesota Twins and Colorado Rockies, respectively. Beltre, meanwhile, aged so wonderfully that he became one of the most popular players in the game during his time with the Texas Rangers, his fourth Major League Baseball team. How did... How and why did they get elected? Let's take a look at each player. When Beltre became a free agent after the 2009 season, following five seasons with the Seattle Mariners, after starting his career with the Los Angeles Dodgers, he hardly looked like the future Hall of Famer. He had finished his age 30 season hitting 265, 304, 379 slash and missing six weeks after surgery to remove bone spurs in a shoulder, and another two weeks after a bad hop left him with a swollen testicle. He had been a good player in Seattle, and he had enjoyed a monster 2004 season when he finished second in MVP voting in L.A., but he wasn't exactly in high demand coming off that rough walk year and settled for a one-year contract with the Red Sox. His career turned around in Boston, however. He hit 321 with 28 home runs and 49 doubles and signed a big deal with Texas, where he would spend his final eight season and build his Hall of Fame resume through a remarkable run of production in his 30s. Through age 30, Beltre ranks 91st in war among position players, still impressive, although he did reach the majors at age 19. From age 31 onward, he ranks 14th. He finished with 3,166 hits, 477 home runs, 1,707 RBIs, and five Golden Gloves. 
He ranks 26th among position players in war with 93.5, and between Roberto Clemente and Al Kaline, and third among third basemen behind Mike Schmidt and Eddie Matthews. What happened in his 30s? Here are the three reasons Beltre turned into a Hall of Famer. One, he left Seattle. In his five seasons with the Mariners, he hit just 254, 307, and 410 at home while hitting 277, 326, and 472 slash lines on the road with 40 or more doubles. It's a beautiful ballpark, Beltre said when he returned to Seattle's Safeco Field for a series in 2010. But it's no secret that offensively, when you try and hit in this ballpark, it's a little tough on you. It wasn't just leaving Seattle. Beltre did become a better hitter with help from then Red Sox hitting coach Dave Magadan in 2010. Beltre's strikeout rate with the Mariners was low, with a low 16.2% over the rest of his career. Even strikeouts rose across the majors. It was just 12.3%. He also became a little less hole-centric. Through age 30, his OPS plus was 105, and after age 30, it was 130. But he also went to home parks where he thrived. In his final nine seasons with Boston and Texas, he hit a slash of 330, 385, and 555 at home. On the road, he hit 284, 332, and 476, not much different than his road numbers when he was with the Mariners. Two, he remained a strong defensive player. Beltre already had an elite defensive reputation when he left Seattle, although he had somehow won just two Golden Gloves. He's the best I've ever seen, says his former Mariners teammate Raul Ibanez told the Boston Globe in 2010. He's blessed with some great instincts at third. Then Red Sox manager Terry Francona said, but he takes more ground balls than anybody I've ever seen. While many third basemen eventually move to first base, assuming their bat is good enough or even designated hitter, Beltre remained at third and added three more golden gloves. Baseball Reference credits Beltre with 216 fielding runs above average in his career, the fifth highest total at any position, and second behind Brooks Robinson among third basemen. That continued defensive excellence helped fuel Beltre's high career WAR total. And point three, his durability. Beltre averaged 148 games per season from age 31 through age 37, with only a leg injury that limited him to 124 games in his first year at Texas, cutting into that average. Since he reached the majors at such a young age, he ranks 15th all-time in games played, second in games at third base, and 18th in plate appearances. War is a cumulative stat, so the simple act of showing up and playing well creates value. Maybe Beltre isn't quite an inner circle guy, certainly at their best. I'd take Schmidt, Matthews, George Brett, and probably Chipper Jones above Beltre among third basemen, but he is a slam-dunk Hall of Famer, and the vote totals reflect that. So here's why Todd Helton is a Hall of Famer. Helton was a two-way baseball star at Tennessee and once started at quarterback on the football team ahead of a freshman named Peyton Manning. 
the eighth pick in the 1995 draft, Helton reached the majors in 1997, and over his first seven full seasons, he hit a slash line of 340, 434, and 620, while averaging 35 home runs and 118 RBIs. Along the way, he joined Hall of Famers Lou Gehrig and Chuck Klein as the only players with two seasons with 100 extra base hits. Of course, those seasons came at Coors Field in the peak of the steroid era when many hitters were putting up absurd numbers. At the time, it was difficult to make sense of it all, even from those first-generational statistical analysts. Comparing Helton to Sandy Colfax, Baseball Perspective once wrote, Both players are very good, among the best in the game, but it's easy to overestimate how good because their stats are widely distorted. There are people who have an emotional attachment to the idea that Sandy Colfax was one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history, rather than a good one with a high peak and some fortuitous timing. It would be interesting to ask those same people how they ranked Todd Helton, because Helton, between 2000 and 2003, is going to have a lot in common with the Sandy Colfax of 1963 to 1966. While Helton would play 17 seasons and finish with a 316 lifetime batting average, back problems slowed him considerably in the second half of his career, leaving him short of 3,000 hits with 2,519 or even 400 home runs. He hit 369. His Hall of Fame case was a difficult one to analyze on several fronts, and he received just 16.5% of the vote in his first year on the ballot, and that was in 2019. In his sixth year, however, he made it, and here's why. The crowded ballot cleared up room for Helton. Timing can be everything for a candidate. It can sometimes come down to who else is on the ballot, especially at your position. The Hall of Fame ballot logjam that existed throughout most of the 2010s had cleared up uh, had cleared up some by 2019, but it still featured a lot of strong and borderline candidates. In 2019, four players got in: Mariona Rivera, Roy Halladay, Edgar Martinez, and Mike Mussina. Helton's former Rockies teammate Larry Walker was still there. Fred McGriff was still there in his final season. Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens were on their seventh ballots. Helton finished just 15th in the voting. When Walker made it to the Hall the following season, it clearly helped. Walker had overcome the Coors Field stigma, so maybe Helton could as well. Then the ballot thinned out. In 2021, the BBWAA threw a shutout, but Helton's vote total climbed to 44.9%. There was a lack of strong new candidates entering the ballot. David Ortiz made it in 2022. And when Schilling, Bonds, and Clemens left the ballot after 2022, it was the weakest it had been in decades. Helton's numbers or value didn't change, but the perception of him did in comparison to the other candidates. Reason two, course fields or not, an appreciation of his peak. Helton's five-year run from 2000 to 2004 was remarkable. 372, 336, 329, 358, and 347 were his batting averages. Those are Tony Gwynn-like averages with way more power and walks. With WAR, 
we can make the appropriate course field adjustments and Helton still shines. Among first basemen, Helton's best five seasons total a 37.6 war, ranking fourth all time behind only Luke Garrett, Albert Pujols, and Jimmy Fox, and accounts for much of his career 61.8 total. Over his career, Helton hit 345 at Coors Field, but he still hit an excellent 287, 386, 469 slash on the road. And during his dominant five-year stretch from 2000 to 2004, he hit a slash line of 314, 418, and 556 away from altitude, the ninth highest OPS over those years. Only Bonds, Jason Giambi, and Manny Ramirez had the higher road OBP during that stretch, and nobody hit more doubles, a factor in Coors Field penalty that Rockies players have to deal with. The brain has to readjust to pitches that move more on the road, and Helton still comes out as one of the best hitters of his era. 3. A 316 lifetime batting average looks awesome in 2024. Yes, voters pay more attention to analytics than ever, but the BBWAA block still features old-school stats of voters who don't care about a player's war, and a 316 career average looks more impressive with each passing season. The only player since 1900 with at least 6,000 plate appearances and a higher lifetime average than Helton, who is not in the Hall of Fame, is Babe Herman. In essence, the young analytical voters appreciated Helton's high peak value, and the older, less analytical voters couldn't ignore that 316 average. So why is Joe Maurer a Hall of Famer? When the Twins selected Maurer with the first pick in the 2001 draft, it was viewed as a bit of a compromise choice. They were selecting the local high school hero over USC right-hander Mark Pryor, who was considered the greatest college pitcher ever after a dominant junior season just to save money. The Twins, after all, had failed to sign first-round picks Jason Veritek in 1993 and Travis Lee in 1996. Twins did not draft best player, read the headline in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. The Twins passed on the best player in the amateur baseball draft, says columnist Don Barrio wrote. They blinked. They surrendered. They choked. They conceded. Understand that money is the only, is the one and only reason that the Twins went the direction that they did. And this was Maurer's hometown newspaper criticizing the selection. Indeed, while Maurer signed for a hefty $5.15 million signing bonus, the Chicago Cubs took prior with the second pick and signed him to a five-year, $10.5 million major league contract. The Twins insisted that Maurer was a worthy number one overall choice, while Pryor's father blasted the franchise after a team official claimed the Pryor camp had asked for $20 million. While we'll never know if Pryor would have become a Hall of Famer he, if he had stayed healthy. Maurer is now headed to Cooperstown, and here are three key reasons why. One, tremendous peak value as a catcher. While Maurer played just nine full seasons behind the plate before concussions necessitated a move to first base, it was a tremendous run. His seven-year peak war of 39.0 ranks fifth all-time among catchers behind Gary Carter, Johnny Bench, Mike Piazza, and Ivan Rodriguez. 
Maurer won three batting titles along the way, including posting a 365 batting average mark in 2009 that no hitter has reached since. One under-the-radar factor that helps a player get elected is the idea of being the best in his league at his position. While the National League had Buster Posey and Yadier Molina, Maurer was clearly the best catcher in the American League during his time. Even the voters who might not pay attention to war can appreciate that distinction. Two, his MVP season in 2009 was one of the best ever for a catcher. Given that Maurer's career counting stats don't stand out, 143 home runs, 923 RBIs, and 2,123 hits, it helped that he had the astronomical MVP season in his bio and three other top 10 MVP finishes. He hit a slash of 365, 444, and 587 with 28 home runs and 96 RBIs while winning a Golden Glove. He led the American League in all three triple slash categories, and his adjusted OPS trails only two Piazza seasons among catchers, while Maurer's 7.8 war ranks as the fifth highest ever for a catcher, best in the game, even if only for one season, is a nice argument for your Hall of Fame consideration. Reason three, his career war was high enough. With a 5.5.2 war, Maurer ranks ninth among players who were primarily catchers, meaning the top 11 catchers in war are, are now all Hall of Famers. Yes, some of Maurer's value was earned after his move to first base, but in combination with his peak value, it was enough to get in. Consider his ranking among those 11 catchers. Batting average, 306, was fourth. His OBP was 388, that is second. His OPS plus is 124th, that is seventh. He ranked sixth in hits at 2,123, and he ranked third in doubles at 428. Batting runs above average, he was in fifth place with 239. He wasn't a power hitter, and he didn't last long, but the voters got it right. Mowers compares favorably to other Hall of Fame catchers. So just as a refresher, a slash line definition is a colloquial term used to represent a player's batting average, his on-base percentage, and his slugging percentage. Those three stats are often referenced together in baseball media with forward slashes separating them, which is where the term slash line comes from. A slash line is presented when a player's batting average first, on-base percentage second, and slugging, slugging percentage third, uh, so it's ABG slash OBP slash SLG. The latter two stats are added together to generate a player's OPS or on-base plus slugging. And WAR, which is wins above replacement. The definition of war measures a player's value in all facets of the game by deciphering how many more wins he's worth than a replacement-level player at the same position, e.g. a minor league replacement or a readily available fill-in free agent. For example, if a shortstop and a first baseman offer the same overall production on offense, defense, and the base, base paths, the shortstop will have a better war because his position sees a lower level of production from replacement-level players. The formula, 
For position players, the number of runs above average a player is worth in his batting, base running, and fielding, plus adjustment for position, plus adjustment for league, plus the number of runs provided by a replacement level player, slash divided by runs per win. And why it's useful? War quantifies each player's value in terms of specific numbers of wins. And because war factors in a positional adjustment, it is well-suited for comparing players who man different defensive positions. My opinion, just play the game well and you'll come out on top. Well, sadly, we are running out of time already. Turning to football now is what to know about the new commander's head coach, Dan Quinn. This article by John Keem, he is a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out on February 1st on ESPN.com from Ashburn, Virginia. The Washington Commanders once more have turned to a defensive-minded coach to turn their franchise around. Dan Quinn becomes the latest coach to try to turn Washington into something that it hasn't been in a long, long time, a consistent winner. He replaces Ron Rivera, who was fired after four seasons and had been hired by previous owner Dan Snyder under a coach-centric model. New owner Josh Harris did not hire Quinn to be the ultimate football decision maker. That job belongs to general manager Adam Peters. But Quinn's job will require a lot of heavy lifting as the commanders have key holes to fill. There's reason to believe things can improve this time around but there's little doubt that some of the roster issues that have plagued the organization for years haven't changed. Taking a closer look, Commander's reporter John Keem answers three big questions about hiring Quinn, including what comes next. National reporter Dan Grazino dishes on what he's hearing about the hire, and draft analyst Jordan Reed spins it forward to the draft. Finally, front office analyst Mike Tannenbaum grades the hire. Here's a look at Washington's first hire under Harris. Team. The most used word during the commander's search publicly and privately was leadership. Washington wanted a strong leader. One NFL coach who worked with Quinn said that he was as good as any coach he's been around at setting the standard for an organization. Another coach labeled him as one of the best in the NFL, so he has numerous fans in the league. Quinn coached the Atlanta Falcons from 2015 to 2020. His career record isn't impressive with uh, 43 wins against 42 losses, and he went 3-2 and two in the playoffs. But he displays the traits Washington wants in a head coach, someone who has the same vision for the organization as the general manager. Peters, the new GM, spent six seasons in San Francisco while coach Kyle Shanahan, who was Quinn's offensive coordinator in Atlanta for two seasons before becoming head coach. Well, sadly, <laughs> we're out of time already. So we will cut to the chase here. And Tannenbaum is asked how he would grade the hire, an A-. minus. Quinn is an experienced coach who has been to the Super Bowl, and he made the Cowboys' defense immeasurably better over three seasons as their coordinator. It's a solid move. And so that's all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Sports News. We will catch up with you later after the Super Bowl. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.
7777.